It used to be that when the foster system took a child from their biological family, the focus would be on getting them back together. That changed in 1997, when President Clinton signed the Adoption and Safe Families Act. No longer would the government prioritize reuniting children and their parents. On the other hand... The thing that's just astonishing to me and should be astonishing to everybody is that states can spend whatever they want on adoption assistance. This week on Interstates, activist, scholar, and adoptive parent herself, Nicole Siegel, on the foster care system. We'll talk about why she calls it family policing, how it relates to other carceral systems, and how she thinks about her and our complicity in that system. Welcome to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. This episode is called Family Policing. The iceberg is a metaphor that I came up with when I was thinking through some of the other metaphors that people have used to describe the carceral system. Carceral is an adjective that means having to do with prison. But it can then become a noun on its own, the carceral, just as a way to implicate all the pieces of the system. My name is Nicole Siegel. I'm an abolitionist activist. I've been working lately with a group called Care Not Cages to fight the expansion of the jail system in Monroe County, Indiana. I also teach at Indiana University Bloomington in the American Studies and History Departments. You know, activists for a long time have been talking about the prison industrial complex, and that's this really useful concept that leans on an earlier concept, the military-industrial complex, which was actually Eisenhower's way, President Eisenhower's way of talking about the relationship between government and the military. And, you know, as he was exiting office, he coined this term to critique the ways that he feared that the state was funding the military, investing in the military, causing military investments in the market outside of the state that would perpetuate a kind of militarism, regardless of whether the people and their elected government wanted it. And activists took up this concept to decry it so effectively that people forget that it was actually coined by a sitting president. And it has evolved, I think, the prison industrial complex then began to be a really useful concept in the 1990s. And that becomes a term that I think has now eclipsed probably in public understanding the military industrial complex. But since then, people have sort of proliferated this idea. So all kinds of blank industrial complexes are posited yep. and as terms of critique, right, to just show how different systems enmesh themselves in the market and are supported by government. And then it gets abbreviated PIC. And then it gets critiqued by the very activists who found it really useful in the first place for being facile or ho- overly monolithic or forgetting its ongoing construction, you know, or for giving too much credit 
to oppressive systems, the state and the market, and not enough to other, to, to you know, the ability of people to resist it. All, all kinds of reasons has become subject to critique. And so from there, then we move on to these other conceptualizations, I think, of the prison system. And one of the earliest is that of Michel Foucault, a French historian whom I'm sure most academics would prefer to hear less about. <laughs> but actually, I just taught a little section of Foucault's Discipline and Punish in a class I'm teaching up at Plainfield Correctional Facility with IU students and students from Plainfield. And they absolutely loved it. So this idea that Foucault is impenetrable or uninteresting, you know, today, I think. Or just kind of overdone, which I think people overdone. maybe in the academy feel. But you know, people who haven't been yeah. kind of exposed constantly. That's right. We can see it more freshly and think, oh, right, this actually does still seem to describe pretty accurately. Beautifully. What's going yeah. on. So the metaphor that Foucault chose was the archipelago, what he called the carceral archipelago. And he started talking about this in relation to the Soviet gulag, but he wasn't trying to critique the Soviet Union, you know, this was full-on Cold War, 1960s, 70s, 80s. He was talking about France, his own country. And we can easily apply this idea of the carceral archipelago to the notion of the prison industrial complex or to conceptualize the way that the carceral looks, stands spatially in our moment because it's full of all these little islands that come to the surface and they might look from far above as if they were unconnected. But they are connected underground, right? There's some kind of sea ridge that they all connect to. It's underwater, but it's essential. And so other theorists now much more recently have been talking about not only the carceral, but other structures of oppression like racism and racial capitalism with similar metaphors. And two of the most powerful are Christina Sharp, who talks about the wake and theorizes water, the water behind the slave ship, but also the after effects of slavery in the lived experiences of people who are touched by that history and legacy. And Tiffany Lithabo King, who goes back to the water to find the black shoals, these places that are shifting sands, sometimes underwater, sometimes not, you know, trying to find a solid place from which to stand and sometimes finding it, sometimes falling under and drowning, drowning again, drowning again. She's also responding to the formations of black resistance, anti-anti-black resistance, and to the possible formations of solidarity with Native Americans, with indigenous peoples in the Americas and worldwide. The histories of the triangle trade and transatlantic slavery and African chattel slavery in the Americas, those histories are absolutely essential to the carceral, to the prison system, to all of the interconnected systems that make up this formation 
in the contemporary, in the, in the 21st century. The systems of the carceral are so important to place in relation to each other, to understand in relation to each other. You know, prisons, obviously, but jails, immigrant detention, e-carceration, that is electronic monitoring and other forms of that kind of incarceration, family policing, which is what I now call foster care. In some of the work that I did up until 2022, I was still saying foster care, and I've switched decisively over to family policing. It describes the system much better. It sets you up for an abolitionist analysis, and it makes the connection to the other pieces of the carceral system much more easily and quickly. So there, those five prisons, jails, immigrant detention, e-carceration, family policing, and then and surveillance, which is a part of all of them, but worth naming on its own. You know, now we're, now we're out of three dimensions into something like four, or I don't know how many mathematically, because surveillance crosses all of the X and Y axes. So that's circling the iceberg. Yeah. And then there's this one piece of the of the iceberg that's underneath, which is family policing. Can you uh, talk about the history of that system? There's a deeper history than, than I will offer here, but maybe we could just start by remembering that the progressive era that turned from the 19th to the 20th century was a period of lawmaking against things like child labor and on behalf of child welfare. And there's been plenty of academic attention to the ways that the progressive era child welfare laws have fed directly into the ones that subsequently were formed. Then you have a moment of lawmaking around child welfare that's pretty intense in the 60s and 70s. In between those two is the creation of the Social Security Act in the 1930s, in 1930, 35. And the provisions of the Social Security Act are the ones that now govern family policing. The Social Security Act had some titles added to it in the 60s, 70s, 80s, continues to be modified today. But that is where now federal funding for family policing comes from. And so, so in the 60s, child welfare was moved to its own branch of the Social Security Act. In the 80s, adoption assistance was hived off so that the funding for that could be independent. And so the evolution of the progressive era child protection legislation has given us a system in which there is an enormous amount of money available to separate children from their families. The kinds of destruction of bonds of intimacy and kinship that are rooted in chattel slavery in the selling of children away from their parents and in colonial dispossession, you know, the genocide of Native Americans, the uprooting of people from their lands, the decimation of populations through plague inflicted and forced relocation and later of the assimilative Indian schools, the 
so-called boarding schools, you know, those histories then are extended by, by the Social Security Act and by the 20th century lawmaking around that. So we have slavery, boarding schools, child welfare services. These systems, Alex, you know, the way they feed into each other, all of these multiple systems, it's essential to see their slippery and shifting relationships because it prevents you from imagining some evil big brother, you know, some wizard of Oz behind the curtain manipulating the puppets. You know, it's not a puppet master. There is no puppet master. I'm <laughs> crazy mixing metaphors here. But I think it's, it's very easy for people to imagine, and a lot of conspiracies are theorized as a result of this, because it's so bewildering to see how these histories, legacies, laws, attempts to reform give us this horrific system in the present. If you're just joining us, we're talking with activist, writer, and teacher Nicole Siegel about why she decided foster care should be understood as a form of family policing. It's time for a break. When we come back, Nicole explains what took her from studying prisons and policing to family policing. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I'm talking with activist and scholar Nicole Siegel about why child welfare is also a form of family policing. I asked Nicole what shifted her attention from prisons and police to the system's effect on families. I will start with some of the women I met when I was teaching at the Indiana Women's Prison in 2017. So I've been I've been doing teaching on the inside since 2010 in Indiana at four different correctional facilities. And it just so happened that in 2017, I was at IWP, and I began to meet people who were struggling not to lose their children. And I learned from them that there had been a recent change in Indiana law that made it much easier for women who were sent to prison to lose their children, to lose their parental rights, to have their parental rights terminated. That's the legal way to say that. So... The new law specified that women sentenced to greater than three years in prison would lose their parental rights. And the idea there is that, you know, the good idea about protecting children is that children who float around the foster care system or from caretaker to caretaker for a long period of time are are deeply traumatized. And that is true. But the solution that, that people devised was to yank them out of the system more quickly, facilitating their adoption. And what that does to the natal family is irreversible and devastating. So I I was noticing these changes in Indiana. And then um, I was also going through stuff in my own life that that had been brewing for a long time. I wanted to be a parent. And uh, a couple of things converged to make to make me make that happen. And I was, for a bunch of reasons, I was not going to do it in the 
perhaps mainstream way. So I, I did. I became a foster parent. And so then I began to experience the system from this completely other perspective. And I, I was honestly, I was astonished that I was allowed to become a foster parent. <laughs> um, I thought that they wouldn't want a single person. They, in Indiana especially, would maybe have regulations against allowing an out lesbian, a queer person, to become a parent. I thought perhaps that I wouldn't be religious enough or too Jewish or Jewish but not Jewish enough as a secular person. That, that I would be too old. Did I say that already? No. That I thought that I would be too old. Yeah, I was 50. I might have had issues in an earlier moment when there was less of a need for foster parents. But at the moment that I entered that system, the system was flooded with children. And there was such a deep need for foster parents that a lot of the earlier strictures or preferences or intolerances had been lifted. The Indiana Family Policing, or foster care system, expanded astonishingly in the years 2012 to 2017. The percentage of parents losing their parental rights rose 21% in that period, 2012 to 2017. And the number of children waiting for adoption, needing to be adopted, rose 80% in that period. So a 21% rise in parental rights termination created an 80% rise in children needing to be adopted. And the number of children in out-of-home care began to rise in 2005, but rose steadily through 2017 with a huge and noticeable uptick after 2014. So that in 2017, the rate of out-of-home care in Indiana was twice the national average. So Indiana is doing some, some special things right. to pull kids out of natal families, to take children from their families of origin. States around Indiana actually saw the numbers fall. Hmm. It's not about a, a rise nationally or regionally. It's about specific things happening in Indiana. But the things that I'm going to talk about now are not specific to Indiana. There's some kind of perfect storm that happened in Indiana. And a couple other states have some similar numbers. Indiana's not unique, although some analysts of the system as a whole call Indiana a driver of the national numbers around parental rights termination and separation of children from families. So the first thing that happens is the rise of the opioid epidemic. We had this huge rise in opioid-related deaths from 2014 to 2017. But it's, it's not an obvious relationship there. You might think, oh, opioids rise, you know, more addiction, more deaths greater poverty or people are going to prison. But that's not exactly what happened because, in fact, poverty rates fell in Indiana in this period. And the prison population held steady. But the number of women in prison in Indiana actually fell 
between 2014 and 2017. And so it can't just be that opioids are causing poverty or incarceration or death. And death does not cause necessarily an increase in children in the foster care system because families with a death can keep their children if there are two parents or if there are kin. The thing is that Indiana is one of several states that removes children born to addicted mothers at birth. So if a, if a pregnant person is addicted to opioids and gives birth in a hospital, that person will lose their child. So in, in 2016, Indiana was one of 14 states to do that. And I think that has changed. I think actually more states now have similar laws, but I don't know the exact number. So that's a policy choice. Basically, Indiana has decided to take children away from their families as a result of the opioid epidemic, which we should lay at the feet of the pharmaceutical corporations that are behind that. But we don't. We blame the parents, especially the mothers, mothers you know, along with the lionization of motherhood and maternity, the pedestal, right? There's the dungeon into which we throw mothers. We blame mothers before we blame anybody else whenever there's an opportunity. So there's this enormous... Therefore, expansion of the number of kids, right, who need, they need reunification, they need adoption, whatever it is people might think they need. But there are other pieces of the system that in the earlier part of this period, closer to 2012 or 2014, are not in place. And one of those pieces is DCS. DCS had budget surpluses in 2009, 10, 11. They gave money back to the feds. They didn't have the kinds of capacity to, to soak up that surplus. There was a surplus of federal funds created by the Social Security Act Title IV, B and E. Those are the provisions of the Social Security Act that pull money in for family unification, foster care, and adoption. So here was this surplus of federal funds, and Indiana couldn't, couldn't absorb it. So DCS hired. It went on this hiring spree, and it hired over, over 250 employees in a two-year period in 2011 and 12. And then there was this just glut of DCS agents. And I remember in 2017 when I was talking about this with my students that they told me that there was this enormous expansion of the body of DCS and that that made it possible for DCS to remove so many more children from families. But then the other piece of this 
unholy alliance, this unromantic triangle, is foster parents themselves. There, there were nowhere near enough foster parents to absorb the children. And there, there weren't, you know, the equivalent of orphanages, you know, group homes or shelters either. So there was then this huge push for an expansion of the body of foster parents in Indiana. And I, I don't know entirely how it worked, but I know that one aspect of it was advertising. Because you begin to see these ads, and I'm sure you've seen them, for, you know, be a foster parent. There are these beautiful headshots of, you know, happy, smiling parents and children who either do or don't look alike. I also think people were driven to be foster parents because when a child is collected into the system, a relative can't take them unless they are a licensed foster parent. So a lot of relatives who wanted to care for their children or their siblings' children had to become licensed foster parents. When I was training to be a foster parent, I was often the only or one of the only non-kin foster parents in the room or foster parent hopefuls in the room. The other way, besides advertising, that the system expanded is through agencies. Agencies proliferated that could produce foster parents or that could run children's shelters. You know, these agencies are bodies they're usually private, but they interact with the state in a way that makes them, I think, deeply hybrid. I think you could call them state market bodies because they need the state and they need the market. They're neither one nor t'other. They're absolutely both. They recognize opportunities and they set themselves up to be in the flow of federal funds. Federal funds are there for the taking. States can reimburse. States can get reimbursed for the monies they expend on family reunification somewhat and adoption assistance without cap. And so these agencies that are either mediating between DCS and foster parents in individual homes or setting, actually setting up shelters, I think created this enormous capacity in foster care. We're listening to activist and scholar Nicole Siegel describing the relationship between the child welfare system and deep histories of social control. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. This episode is called Family Policing with Nicole Siegel. Nicole says foster parents occupy a particular niche in the broader carceral system. It's a savior niche. This is true regardless of where that is. Foster parents are imagined as selfless, as people who put themselves out for needy children. And then you also have the specter of the, you know, the perfect innocent child who is the other discursive engine of this system, of these tropes. And then so foster parents step into the role of the altruistic saver of this needy subject. Uh, 
And so foster parents, being a foster parent is not easy. And I, now I have met many foster parents, and I've understood their struggles viscerally and personally. And so I have a pretty compassionate understanding of why this self-congratulatory position is so necessary, because... The system is devastating for children, and children come out of it with rage and survival strategies that are really hard to deal with, like cruelty and lying and manipulation, self-harm and the exaggeration of sickness and, you know, depression and anxiety and <laughs> not on the level that parents of children who have been with them their whole lives experience. I mean, sometimes when I, I talk to friends and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I have, I have, my children have tantrums too. The, what, what foster parents experience is unbelievable. In compensation, I think foster parents do a kind of psychological self-strengthening through these conceits of the altruist, the hero, the savior. And that involves the necessary demonization of birth parents. And, and so you see this incredible, just the dumping of really hateful ire onto the backs of natal parents. I think that it, it belongs rightly on the system of which we are all a part. But when people tell these stories about, about natal parents, foster parents, and foster kids, it seems that you must have a demon and you must have a hero. And when people switch that narration around, they just... They never arrive at a structural vision of a group of people all struggling to survive under a carceral racial capitalism. Instead, it has to be somehow a story about heroes and villains. So it's you either demonize the birth parent or, you know, and the foster parent is the savior and the child is innocent and need of saving. Or you could demonize the child and say they're a sociopath. Or you could you can demonize the foster parent and that definitely happens also. You know, right. I think one version of that is the foster parents are in it for the money. Right. Yes, that's another reason foster parents need this kind of altruistic self-positioning is right. to combat the accusation that they're doing it for the money. Right. Yeah, that it's yeah. a for-profit system, right. which it absolutely is, but that's not the motivation for the system. The system develops its economic incentives as it goes along, and then those financial investments prevent people from getting out of it. And the agencies are the primary drivers of that, not individuals. Right. Which, once again, I think reminds us of the problem with saying an individual family is motivated by money or not by right. money. It's kind of irrelevant to thinking about the bigger It is irrelevant, yeah. Issue. And it is akin to the ways that welfare mothers, quote-unquote welfare mothers, were demonized for having too many children in the 1980s and taking advantage of welfare laws. You know, foster parents are, are, are fit into that slot of demon, and it, that might be the basis for some solidarity between foster parents and birth parents, but it isn't because a kind of 
psychological self-separation is needed for foster parents to position themselves in a way that, that will protect their psyches. Every once in a while, there will be some horrific foster family that will do something terrible to a foster child. And then that will hit the news. And foster families will once again be the demon in this morality tale. And then lawmakers will change the statutes to somehow try to prevent this particular thing that happened from ever happening again. And each time that happens, it's usually simply an expansion of the regulation, which either limits the capacity of the family policing system to account for the needs of any of the individual people in it, or, you know, redounds on the shoulders of the poorer and the black and brown members of the system, whether they're natal parents, foster parents, or children. There's also a foster parent lobby. It's powerful, and it's done a couple of specific things. Based on a lawsuit, it successfully reinstantiated payments to foster to adopt parents, parents who have adopted their children from the foster care system. All foster parents get financial subsidies based on how traumatized the child in their care is. You get more if your child is more traumatized. Wow. <laughs> and after a certain moment, which I think was 2009 in Indiana, there was a funding shift and Indiana stopped paying subsidies when the child was adopted. So foster parents were successful in getting those subsidies reinstated. And when you adopt, you go through a kind of bargaining with the state to see what your subsidy will be. And they, they investigate your finances, they look at everything you got going for you, what you need, what the child needs. You know, you, you have to show yourself financially to the state to be evaluated. That's one thing that the foster lobby has done. The other is this Foster Parent Bill of Rights, which was successfully passed by, by a group explicitly calling itself a, the foster, um, a foster parent rights group. The legal change that I mentioned to you previously regarding the termination of parental rights from a parent, uh, a mother in particular, who is facing a prison bid longer than three years is a result of that lobbying as well. So Foster Parent Bill of Rights are pretty explicitly rights against natal parents. Yes. The foster parent lobby understands itself often in direct opposition to natal parents. And I think there are two modes of that imagination. One is a more abstract one, where foster parents imagine themselves in relation to a body of unknown, demonized natal parents, and that can have a distinctly racist tinge. And then there is the equally devastating separation that people imagine from their biological kin when they're taking their own family's children because that reflects the the struggles within that family over perhaps poverty, addiction, mental health issues, 
or other incapacities. Sometimes the people who become the foster parents in those situations have been involved in getting the parental rights of those natal parents terminated. You know, before I became a parent, I really didn't understand how heavy it was to separate a child from their parents. I think I thought, oh, well, there's a period of separation, but if they get to go back, everything's fine. Everything is not fine. I don't know what the parents go through. That's something that I haven't experienced myself. But having watched children go through it and now, and knowing people who parent children who've gone through it and seeing the kinds of things that a child takes with them from that period in which they feel abandoned or out of control or unsafe or at fault or stupid, wrong, it is so much damage. And people do recover from it because people are powerful. But boy, does it take some doing. I mean, I think about it as a parent. And I think once it started to be in the news when kids were being separated at the border, mm-hmm. it was really hard to even begin to imagine that. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I can think about it on the parent side also. And to think how incredibly devastating it would be for me as as an adult, you know, who I think maybe has a little bit, you know, I've developed some <laughs> resilience. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, we in theory can develop those things. And um, and then to have it be that even that more, that much more extreme for a kid. It's different for the parent than the kid, yeah. right? It's not that right. it's more extreme. Yeah. It's qualitatively different. Your brain is developing And, you know, if you have childhood trauma, your brain does not develop in the same way. You lose the ability to concentrate. You lose memory. You lose cognitive function. It affects you for a long time. I hope people do put themselves in the position of a parent who loses their child. I hope everybody who's a parent listening will do that right now because there are so many blocks in place that prevent people from imagining themselves as the people who might lose their children. Those are the ideological constrictions of all of the us-thems that structure the way we think about ourselves. You know, oh, well, people who break the law. Oh, well, immigrants who came here illegally. Oh, well, those people. Right. Whatever the distinction is, it prevents yeah. people from allowing themselves to imagine. But once you allow yourself to imagine, you can't not do something, I hope. What do you feel moved to do or what do you hope people feel moved to do? In, in New York City during COVID, the family policing system kind of ground to a halt. It was really interesting. It was a natural abolitionist experiment because DCS stopped, or the equivalent of DCS in New York City, stopped removing children from their families under allegations of abuse or neglect. 
because everything stopped during COVID. And guess what did not rise in New York City in those months when there were no removals? Rates of abuse and neglect. They did not rise. The alibis for the system of family policing are just like the alibis for the prison system, right? The alibis for the prison system are the rapists and the murderers. Oh, but what about the rapists and the murderers? We need safety from them. We need protection. We need, you know, Big Daddy to come protect us from the big bad wolf. And therefore, we create laws, and then the laws end up being enforced in the ways that we have seen that extend the hierarchies of race and class that we inherit from previous systems of racial discipline, including Jim Crow and African chattel slavery. And for family policing, the alibis are the terrible child abusers and the terrible neglectful people. It's really interesting to notice if you are a person who talks about these things with your friends that there are so many grown-ups who are survivors of some pretty awful neglect or abuse who were never removed from their families because we do not remove people from their families for abuse or neglect, period. We remove people from their families for allegations of abuse and neglect levied against black, brown, and poor and working families. We do not have, except in very rare exceptions, kids in the family policing system from middle class and wealthy families. They're not there. And so recognizing that allows you to see these Horrific stories of abuse and neglect, which get trotted out as the basis for lawmaking, as alibis for the system of family policing, which is a policing system. The family policing system removes children from black and brown and poor and working families as a mode of discipline. And as an infliction of sort of gratuitous cruelty, which is a form of racial construction, it is a mode of racialization to create misery that then works to perpetuate inequalities. Misery is the bottom of the, of the ladder. Immiserating people is to reinforce racial categories. And so it's one of the systems that we should dispense with. It's one of the systems that we should dispense with by building networks of care that are outside of the state market, not by expanding the systems that are reinforced, that are supported by state violence but by, by building systems focused on beloved communities. Do you have models in mind that you've seen 
that you've heard about, read about? The best models are in places where the state has experienced more as violence and less as care. People take themselves outside of state systems. But the problem is that those are the most resource-poor places, and so they don't look great. They They might look like collective care, but they certainly don't look like communal luxury. There were some models of mutual aid that were reinforced during COVID. Mm -hmm. COVID did allow for some of these networks of care to flourish, and they are not necessarily visible to uh, mainstream media or independent media, but we know that some of these systems also flourished after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, in favelas and quilombos in Brazil under... Um, neoliberal slum systems in Chile under Pinochet, you know, in in the rural United States. We know that they exist, and they have existed, and they they rise and fall in different, as different historical conditions allow. But if we were to nourish them more deliberately and highlight them allow them to be in conversation with each other, inform each other, then we could grow more of them. And in the meantime, the state and people who mess with its institutions can help by not expanding the system, by taking money out of the more punishing parts of the system, and in in some ways by, by redistributing the resources that are available to things like education. You know, I'm so wary now. I used to say, I used to say redistribute money from the police to care systems, to social workers. But now that I'm thinking about family policing, I can no longer say redistribute money to social workers because social workers are so profoundly a part of this policing system. And if you look at the iceberg and you see how the devastations of prison, the incarceration of say, growing numbers of women is connected to the termination of parental rights and the flooding of family policing systems with foster children needing to be adopted, then you just can't place your hopes in social workers or teachers because we're carceral workers too. You know, then I add yet another category in which I myself am a part of the system. Even as I try to be a part of the kind of autonomous networks that I'm telling you about, which I do consciously and in my in my neighborhood, but I am a part of an incredibly brutal, evil system, and I do not want to shrink from that recognition, and I cannot extricate myself from it because I will remain a parent. activist and scholar Nicole Siegel. Her most recent book is Violence Work, State Power and the Limits of Police. 
If you want to learn more about the relationship between child welfare and social control, Nicole recommends a number of books. We'll list all her recommendations on our website, but I do want to mention a few here as well. The first, which just came out last year, is Dorothy Roberts' book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. The second is Laura Briggs' recent book, Taking Children, which argues that the U.S. has been taking children for political ends for 400 years. The last one I'll mention here is also the oldest, Anthony Platt's 1969 book, The Child Savers. That argues that attempts to save children at the turn of the 20th century were really about controlling the lives of working-class adolescents. We'll post links to those books and more on our website. Okay, one more recommendation. If you want a podcast about the taking of Native children, check out This Land Season 2. It's about how a law meant to keep Native children with their families is being challenged in the Supreme Court and how that could have major consequences for tribal sovereignty overall. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Have you been listening to Interstates for a while? Is this your first episode? Either way, we want to know what you think. We're doing a survey. Is getting to talk to us not enough motivation on its own? In case a raffle also helps, we will be doing one. A few lucky survey takers will get some classic public radio swag. Follow the link on our website, and while you're at it, tell your friends about the show. We like talking with people, and we hope you do too. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Jack Lindner, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Ramon Monras sender Special thanks this week to Nicole Siegel. All right, time for some found sound. was an October afternoon in a wetland. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Riding back at the top of the hunter's moon See airplanes like stars slinging Subliminal, we make the rounds and soon